All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, why don't we start off in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we are we just want to praise you. God, we don't we don't even want to thank you for any specific thing right now. We just want to praise you for who you are. We want to just say thank you for for being the Almighty, for being the creator of heaven and earth, for being the one who knows us inside and out, for being the one who gives us your eternal word and truth. God, I ask as we as we study your word that you would help us to do it with with eyes that that have a willingness to see you and hearts that have a willingness to experience your love. Father, I ask that you would be with me. I ask that you would help me to handle your word faithfully, that my words would be clear and concise and that that your will would be done and not mine. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you for your son. And it's in his precious name that we pray. And the church said, amen. Um. Has anybody ever read the book Animal Farm? It's a George Orwell book. A couple of you, yeah. It was one of those ones that was like required reading in every ninth grade English class, and so it's been a minute. Um, it came out in 1945, so if I spoil it, you've had 80 years to read it. Sorry. Um, but in the book Animal Farm, George Orwell is writing this book. He's writing about the, the Soviet Union, and he uses these animals on a farm in order to... As, as like an allegory. And the, and the way the book goes is the, all the animals are on the farm and they, they eventually overthrow their oppressive farmer ruler. They overthrow the farmer and they take control. They, they get rid of the one who's, who's doing evil. And the pigs in the, in the farm eventually becoming the, become the ringleaders of this, of this group. And what happens is slowly over time, the pigs start to become more and more like the thing that they hated to begin with. So they write out their, their animal farm constitution, and one of the laws says, four legs good, two legs bad. In other words, you know, if you're an animal, you're good. If you're a human walking on two legs, that's bad. Well, the pigs start to get more and more greedy. They start to want the power that the farmer had, and they eventually start standing up and walking on two legs. And the, the rest of the critters on the farm are like, what's... What's going on here? They go back and look, and the pigs had changed it to say, four legs good, two legs better. And so it's this, it's this story, and it's got a really cool message behind it that if, you know, if you're chasing after the wrong things, you're going to eventually become the problem that you set out to fix. If your heart is not in the right place, and the pigs were chasing after the power and they became the exact problem that they were trying to fix in the first place. And so I want that to be on our mind as a church as we, as we study Philippians chapter 3. Um, we're going to finish Philippians chapter 3 today. Um, but what I want us to kind of do, because we've been going through this book so slowly, and it's been a while since we've read the beginning of Philippians chapter 3, is I'm just going to read the entirety of Philippians chapter 3, Without comment, I won't, I won't step in and try to explain the Greek or anything like that. I'm just going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to dive in and we're going to look at the last section, uh, picking up in around verse 17 or so. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to uh, join with me in, in reading through chapter 3. Um, we're going to start in verse 1. We're just going to go all the way through. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Finally, my brothers and sisters... 
Rejoice in the Lord. To write this to you, again, is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. He says, beware the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, exalt in Christ Jesus, and do not rely on human credentials, though mine too are significant. If someone thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. In my zeal for the church, I persecuted the church. According to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. But these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. More than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness, a righteousness from God that is in fact based on Christ's faithfulness. My aim is to know him, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings and be like him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already attained this, that is, I have not already been perfected, but I strive to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have attained this. Instead, I am single-minded, forgetting the things that are behind and reaching out for the things that are ahead. With this goal in mind, I strive toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let those of us who are perfect embrace this point of view. If you think otherwise, God will reveal to you the error of your ways. Nevertheless, let us live up to the standard that we have already attained. Be imitators of me, brothers and sisters, and watch carefully those who are living this way, just as you have us in his example, as an example. For many live about whom I have often told you, and now with tears I tell you, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, they exult in their shame, and they think about earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we also eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform these humble bodies of ours into the likeness of his glorious body by means of that power by which he is able to subject all things to himself. I want, you to, I want, us, I want us to pay attention to the two different enemies, the two different opponents that show up in chapter 3. That's why I read the whole thing. So there are two different groups that Paul is fighting against that are represented in this chapter. The first one comes up at the very beginning. These are the circumcisers, the Judaizers. We've talked at length about them, these mutilators of the flesh. They wanted the, the Gentiles to adhere to the entire law of Moses, to be perfect in their morality with zero mistakes whatsoever. And then in verse 18, we're introduced to another group who Paul calls enemies of the cross of Christ. It says they exult in their shame. Their God is the belly. What, think about what it means for your God to be the belly. That's, that's like eat, drink, and be merry, right? 
My God is the belly. Whatever I want, whatever makes me happy, whatever makes my tummy full, that's what I'm going to worship. Whatever makes me feel good, that's my God. Because they exult in their shame. When we think about Adam and Eve in the garden, after they had eaten the fruit, they had disobeyed God, they realized they were naked and they were ashamed because they realized they had done something wrong and so they felt shame. The group here we're seeing in Philippians chapter 3, they're boasting in their shame. The things that cause shame, they're proud of it. They're not naked and ashamed, they're naked and proud of it. It's kind of the polar opposite of the first one, isn't it? You have the Judaizers, who almost certainly were Pharisees. They wanted entire, total adherence to the law. They even went so far as to make extra laws on top of God's laws to be more strict so that you could, you could follow their laws and not come close to breaking God's laws. It, they, they did it. it was like if, if you're, the speed limit on your street by your house is 30 and people keep driving about 40 and you go up there and you change the side to say 15 and anybody who's driving over 15, you go spike their tires. That's kind of what the Pharisees did. They weren't content with the laws God had put in, so they put extra laws on top of other people. And Paul's familiar with this group because he was one of them. He says, according to the law, he was blameless. That's the first group. The second group are a group of people called the Gnostics. So the Gnostics are an offshoot of Christianity that happened around the first century who they believed some weird things about the church and about Jesus and about the Bible. But one of the weird things that they believed is they believed that there was no judgment. There was no second coming. There was nothing that we had to be responsible for because we were already forgiven by Christ. And so basically this group that shot out of Christianity was like, hey, Jesus died on the cross. We're forgiven. We can do whatever we want, however we want, with whomever we want, and it doesn't matter. Just so long as you believe in the idea of Jesus, you'll be fine. And so you have this picture of the church being tugged on either side by these overly zealous legalists over here and these libertines, these do-whatever-makes-you-feel-good people on this side, and they're being tugged back and forth which is a lot like what the church is going through today, isn't it? I want us to think about these two different groups and how they came about. How did we get to the church where we have this tug and pull on either side? How do we get the Pharisees, for example? Think about the story of the Old Testament. The story of the Bible is the story of the people of Israel who were punished by God because they weren't obeying anything God said. They were worshiping other gods. They were not keeping the law at all. They weren't keeping the Sabbath the way they were supposed to. They were participating in child sacrifices. They were bowing down to Moloch. They were bowing down to Baal. They were not being obedient at all. And so God punished them and sent them into exile. So now you have this group called the Pharisees that rises up and they start to think to themselves, well, you know, the reason God punished us was because we were so disobedient. So this time, we're going to be extra obedient. We're going to be so super obedient that God will surely send a Messiah to come and rescue us. To the point where it got oppressive. To the point where they were like the pigs in Animal Farm and they got to the, the, 
they were chasing after the power that comes with enforcing the law rather than the desire to do what God asks. Jesus comes along. He shakes up their paradigm. They can't have a guy like that hanging around. Their power structure is firmly in place, and so they kill him. The followers of Jesus started to make this claim that, oh, no, no, our Messiah rose from the dead. And, of course, the Pharisees didn't believe that. They're like, no, we killed that guy. He didn't rise from the dead. We just stole his body. That's what happened. I don't even think that these Judaizers that we're talking about in Philippians chapter 3 truly believed that Jesus was the one who rose from the dead. I could be wrong about that, but I get the idea that if they would have believed Christ rose from the dead, they would have had an entirely different outlook on things. They wouldn't have been trying to force circumcision. They wouldn't have been trying to force the law because they would have realized that it was Christ had risen. I think what happened in the book of Acts, and, and again, this is just my theory, I think that the Judaizers and the Pharisees saw what was going on in the synagogues when all of these Gentiles were coming to read the Torah and follow the God of Israel and, and worship Jewish religion and abandoning their old idols. I think the Pharisees probably thought to themselves like, wow, our whole obedience thing worked. Great. We did it. Now we should enforce it on the Gentiles. Now we should enforce this circumcision on the Gentiles and be overbearing on them because look how great it worked for us. All of these Gentiles are coming to know the Lord. They were absolutely wrong about the means by which the Gentiles were coming to faith in the God of Israel. And so Paul rejects their claims. He says, no, 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 no. You're not saved by your works. You're saved by Christ. You're saved through your faith in Christ. He countermands that pendulum that had swung all the way this way and says, no, 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 it's not about your actions and your obedience. It's about your heart for God. And then you have the Gnostics. You know anything about a pendulum, it does this. Swings back. It does this motion. And so the Gnostics came along and they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about faith. It's all about believing in Christ. It's not about our actions. We don't have to do anything right. Do whatever I want. Whatever makes me happy. That's the picture that we're in, in the church, in the book of Philippians. And now I want us to kind of zoom in, and I want us to look at, um, starting in verse 15. Uh, actually, I'm going to back up a little bit. Let's back up to verse 12, where he says, Not that I've already attained this, that is, I've not already been perfected, but I strive to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. There's a word that's used three times here in this passage. Um, it's a Greek word, is teleao, which means to be perfected, to be completed. It's one of those really weird words that, that has such a wide range of meaning in Greek that in English we have to use different English words to translate it uh, based on the context. So it comes up here in chapter 12. Or verse 12, where he says, I've not already been perfected, or, or your Bible might say, I've not already been completed, I've not already reached my goal. And then in verse 15, he says, let those of us who are perfect, or you might say mature or complete. It's the same word. And it's a word that just means to, to reach the end of your desired goal or state of outcome. So you could imagine uh, if a sculptor has an idea of a sculpture in mind, He's got 
an end state that he has proposed in his mind, and when he's finished, it's teleao, it's perfect. Not in the sense that it's, there's no flaws, no blemishes, but that it's, it's complete. I wanted the statue to look exactly like this, and now I have gotten to the point where it's exactly how I wanted it. It is teleao, it's finished, it's perfect. We use this term in, in a Christian sense as morally mature. You're proceeding toward the person that God wants you to be. Which is why I think verse 15 is, is so critical to understand. Um, it says, let those of us who are perfect, or you might say mature, embrace this point of view, think this way. And then in the Greek it literally says, if you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you. And I want to tell you what this verse does not mean. Because <laughs> this is one of those verses that gets pulled out of context. It gets read a little bit differently. A lot of people have read this verse and they say, let those of us who are mature uh, think this way. And they think, yeah, so some of us are more mature than others. Some of us are better than others. We should think about Christ because we're so mature. We're so great. And if we think differently, if we think otherwise, then God's going to reveal to us th the thing and he's going to make us even more mature. God's going to show us the thing that we were disagreeing about, and he's going to make us more mature. And that's just, if you look at it grammatically in the Greek language, that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying, let those of us, let, let us mature Christians just think mature thoughts because we're so mature, and God's going to make us even more mature. He's going to reveal it to us. No, what Paul is saying is, let those of us who are mature, who are perfect, think this way. And the way he wants you to think is that you're not mature. You're not perfect. You haven't reached it yet. There's a, think about the word this. When I use the word this, a rule of thumb is this represents whatever I just said. Let us think this way. What way? The way I just said. This is how we normally speak in English. This is how we understand each other. And I know that you understand that because I just used the word this like three times and you didn't even have to question what I was talking about. You probably didn't even realize I said it. So he says, not that I've attained this, not that I've been perfected, but I strive to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. In other words, I'm not there yet. I'm not perfect. I'm not mature. And if you think you are, you're wrong. You should think about things the way I think about, which is that I'm not perfect. If you think otherwise, if you think a different thing than that, then God will reveal to you. And that's why I've got in my Bible, it says the error of your ways. It's, an, it's a supplied word to tell you what this is representing. God's going to reveal to you just how imperfect you are. Nevertheless, let us live up to the standard we have already attained. In verse 17... Paul says, be imitators of me, brothers and sisters, and watch carefully those who are living this way, just as you have us as an example. My question for you today is, should we say this to one another in the church today? Should we say, be imitators of me? You can raise your hand if you think we should or if we shouldn't. Should we not encourage other people to imitate us? Uh, it gets tricky, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm not sure. I've done some things like I'm not sure if I want everybody to imitate me. I, my, my takeaway is this. If we read verse 15 and we understand verse 15 to mean I'm mature and I'm so great and everyone should think like me because I'm so great and I'm so mature, then no, I don't think we should say to one another, be imitators of me. 
think there's a hubris there. There's a, an arrogance there. But if we read verse 15 and understand that the thing that we want people to imitate is our striving and our desire to be more and more perfected, more and more like Christ, and the understanding that we're not mature yet, then yes, I think we should. I think we should encourage other people to imitate us in our desire to know Christ better, in our love for Christ, in our desire to always be better. And then you can say, yeah, imitate me in being imperfectly striving toward God. Not because of what I do, follow me because of who I follow. And I think that it is our duty as Christians to strive to live such a life that other people can't help but notice and want to imitate us. Now Paul's going to give us a counter example here in these Gnostics that we talked about. He says, For many live about whom I have often told you and now with tears tell you that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, they exult in their shame, and they think about earthly things. Um, These are the people who say, whatever makes me happy, that's what I want to do. Whatever makes me feel good, that's what I want to do. And I've, I've I've, I've rewritten this sermon like three times already. And at this point is where I had to take the whole thing and crumple it up and start over. Because I want to preach the truth. I want to tell you what the Bible says is true. And I also don't want to be mean. I don't want to sound harsh. So I want you to understand that this is, this is not me trying to pound my fist on the pulpit and say, rah, 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 rabble, rabble, rabble. But this idea that we should just do whatever makes us happy and follow our hearts and and do what we want to do and and be true to ourselves is garbage. If anybody tries to tell you, just do what makes you happy, just do what makes you feel good, run away as far as you can and as fast as you can because the end to that kind of mindset is destruction. I don't want to do what I am feeling like I want to do because the things that I want to do are going to lead to my destruction. I can list 10 things right off the top of my head that make me feel good that will end up either harming me, killing me, or sending me to hell, or all three, right? That's just the fact of it. And this is why it's so important to to think about the church and this tug that it was in because they were tugged on one side by the legalists who said, you have to obey the law perfectly, you have to be circumcised, you have to eat all the right food laws, you have to, you have to, you have to. You're relying on your own merits. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not good. You're saved by your faith. That's bad. Come back to the center pendulum. But then the other side where it's like, yeah, you're saved by your faith, so do whatever you want because you're forgiven anyway. That's bad. Come back to the center, pendulum. And that's the struggle that our church is in today. It's really difficult to find a group of people who either aren't fully on this side of like, you have to be perfect, you have to obey perfectly, you have to earn your salvation, or the other side that says, just do whatever you want. Do whatever makes you feel good because you're forgiven anyway. And Paul is saying both of those will lead in your destruction. And he's not just talking about the, the earthly kind of destruction where he's like, oh, they're going to get it. Gall darn it, if they eat too much rich food, they're going to get fat. 
I tell you, no, he's, he's talking about the eternal kind. The, the eternal kind of destruction. It's the same type of word that Matthew uses when he says the road is narrow that leads to life, but the path is wide that leads to destruction. It's the same word. It's the same idea. There's this balance. And the way we find this balance is we understand that both of these are symptoms of the same problem. This libertine, do-whatever-you-want thing over here, and this legalist, you have to obey or else you can't earn your way to heaven. They're both symptoms of a heart that is not following Christ, that is not chasing after Christ. It's a heart that's chasing after me and doing what I want. You can have that same disease, that selfishness, that chasing after me. That same disease can exhibit both symptoms. Because if I'm chasing after me, then I just want to do what's right and prove how good I am and, and prove how awesome I am. That's why Paul says, no, 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 I haven't reached it. I'm not perfected. I'm not there yet. I'm striving. That same heart, that same disease can lead to the symptom that says, like, I'm already there. Jesus already forgave me. I'm going to go smoke whatever I want and drink whatever I want and be with whoever I want, whenever I want, however I want, whether they like it or not, because I'm forgiven. So why not? That makes you an enemy of the cross. I hope you realize that. Both of them do. If you're not following Christ, you're an enemy of the cross and your end will be destruction. The entire point of the entire chapter 3, the whole point of the whole thing is summed up perfectly in the next two verses. So the end of verse 19, he says, they, they exult in their shame, they think about earthly things. And in verse 20, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. We're not citizens of this world. And by the way, if you remember, it's been a while back, but back in, in chapter 1 where Paul says, I, I urge you to be um, acting as citizens worthy of the gospel, where he's encouraging them not to think of themselves as Roman citizens, but as, as of citizens of the gospel. It's the same exact word. And now he finally brings that idea to a close where he says, our citizenship is in heaven. We chase after King Jesus. We want to do what Jesus wants us to do, not what our hearts want us to do, not what our neighbors want us to do, but what Christ wants us to do. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we also eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform these humble bodies of ours into the likeness of His glorious body by means of that power by which He is able to subject all things to Himself. Uh, as a side note, will somebody... Uh, Send a message downstairs or go ahead and get our, uh, our kids to start coming up. Here's the takeaway. Whatever it is that we put our faith in, whatever it is we put our trust in, that's going to be the thing we chase after. 
And whatever we chase after is going to be the thing that we try to imitate. And whatever we imitate, whatever we chase, whatever we put our trust in, that is the thing that we are going to become. The pigs didn't want liberation on the farm. They didn't want freedom. They didn't want all the animals to be happy and free under the oppressive farmer. They wanted the power the farmer had, and so that's what they put their trust in. They put their trust in their power. They chased after the power. They became the humans. They became the evil they sought to destroy in the first place. The circumcisers, the Judaizers, they put their trust in the flesh. They put their trust in human credentials. They chased after the things of the flesh. They chased after earthly things. And that's what they became. They became mutilators. Evil people who wanted to control somebody else and cause them to do whatever they wanted because they liked the power. The second group, the the libertines, the Gnostics, the ones who just said whatever makes me feel good, they chased after things of the flesh. They chased after earthly things. They chased after their gluttony and sensations and sex and drugs and alcohol and all of the things that made them feel good because their God was the belly. And that's what they became. Their end was destruction. And what's beautiful is that word end. Remember that word teleao I, I told you about? It's the same word. Comes full circle. Paul says, I have not teleao, but I'm striving forward. If you think you are teleao, you're sorely mistaken. Also, if you're chasing after the ways of the flesh, your teleao is going to be eternal destruction. The underlying problem is not chasing the obedience and not chasing the desires. It's chasing self. It's chasing what I want to do. I want to read verses 20 and 21 one more time. It says, But our citizenship is in heaven. As we also eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform these humble bodies of ours into the likeness of his glorious body by means of that power by which he is able to subject all things to himself. Are we subjected to Christ? Because that's what it comes down to. If you are subjected to Christ, if Christ is your Lord, if Christ is your King, if Christ is the one who you worship, you will put your trust in Him. You will chase after Him. You will imitate Him. And you will become, your body will be transformed into the likeness of His glorious body by means of that same power. Let's pray. Father, we just, we just want to have a heart for you. We just want to do your will. Father, we ask that you would help us to avoid the extremes. We ask that you would help us to avoid the legalism on one side and the libertinism on the other side and just chase after your son and imitate your son. Father, we ask that you would help us to share this message with others. We ask that you would help us to... To, to preach your good news to the world, to preach the good news that you sent your son so that we can chase after something that will actually bring us life.
we thank you for this church. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your son. And it's in his name we pray. And the church said,